When does doing the dishes count as editing? And what writing exercises are best for character development? Today, I'm with YA author and Quirk Books editor Blair Thornburg here on The Writing Process. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Writing Process. It's a deep dive podcast conversation with writing masters. As always, I'm your host, Chris Wink, and let me have today's guest introduce herself. Well, my name is Blair Thornburg. Um, I am a YA writer, uh, most recently of Who's That Girl, which is a, a romantic comedy that takes place in Philadelphia about a dorky teenage Latin enthusiast and her weird friends. And uh, I am also an editor at Quirk Books, so I'm basically just like an all-around word nerd. To be sure, everyone featured in this podcast will have some kind of special relationship with words. But for Blair, well, that relationship runs a bit deeper still. Blair was born into a family of, as she said to me, book people going back generations her mother is children's book illustrator Rebecca McKillop Thornburg. Her father, David Thornburg, is an active civic leader in their hometown of Philadelphia. And the other half of the reason why Blair says every room of her parents' home is cluttered with books. It's her grandparents, too, notably her grandfather Dick Thornburg, who used his own love of words and politics and law to become both the governor of Pennsylvania in the 1980s and later the U.S. Attorney General. Blair has this story of sitting in her mother's lap as a child. Her mom is proofing a book that she illustrated, and it's Blair who spots a typo first. When she'd go to a friend's house, she'd dutifully pick out a book and read quietly. In high school, she forged a signature to skip gym so she could take both Latin and French. She's been writing and editing for as long as she can remember. For all that early introduction to reading, writing, and publishing, what may have been most important for her development is that nobody ever told her she couldn't make writing a career. No one ever tried to, like, beat the artist out of me or anything. <laughs> like, I had ridiculously indulgent teachers and parents who just saw that this is what I loved and never told me to get a real job aspiration. Blair told me she recognized that as a real privilege, to be both exposed and supported to do something like writing. Blair is thankful for it. She doesn't take it lightly. So she isn't wasting any time. That book of hers that published last year, Who's That Girl? That was published by industry giant Harper Collins, and she has a second one on the way. That's an incredible feat. She's also an editor at beloved novelty publisher Quirk Books, which has monster hits like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Oh, and Blair's just 28 years old, the youngest writer whom I've honored with an episode of the writing process so far. She represents two ideas I wanted to get at with an interview. For one, unlike others I've interviewed this season, Blair is as much a word nerd as anyone I can think of. She was a medieval studies student at the University of Chicago, for goodness sake. For two, probably because the writing, reading, and editing thing is so second nature to her, 
Blair already can talk shop about publishing as an industry as well as any 20-something I've ever known. She has a two-book deal with HarperCollins and specializes in the thriving young adult fiction category. She's an editor at a small indie press that is bucking publishing trends by printing books people actually still buy. In our hour-long conversation, we got into a whole thing about the process of pitching and selling a book. You can actually find an excerpt of that on writingprocesspod.com. But for this episode, I took the best half hour chock full of methodologies you can bring to your writing. We're going to start here, where the full-time book editor talks about how she still commands her own professional fiction career by scheduling writing time. That includes writing sprints she does on her laptop while riding the commuter train from the suburbs into Center City, Philadelphia. I do a lot of writing on my commute because I live about 40 miles out of Center City, so I have like an hour and 10 minute commute each way. Uh, okay, on, on, re, on a regional, on, on a train. Yeah, on a train. Yeah, I'm not driving, that would be crazy. Although, right, right. That's I, why I was I, like, goodness. I have experimented with dictating into my phone, um, mm-hmm. which... It's kind of fun. It's not super accurate. It does go really fast, which is interesting. Right, but um, right. I just it, you get tired of saying like close comma like parentheses. Um, so yeah, so you're, I'll take you're my trying to be and, you're trying to be grammatically correct in, yeah. in your in your dictation. I do my best. I mean, because otherwise you have to go back that. in and add it yourself. Like, uh, and that just takes twice the time. Um, so. Yeah, so I take my laptop and I try to write there, um, which is not easy. I, I really find that I do better with like five hours of time as opposed to like five hour chunks. Um, but I kind of have to work with what I have. Um, and so it mostly, you know, I'll, I'll sit and try to at least have, I don't know, mentally prepared as I'm like packing my backpack and like drinking coffee before I leave the house, like knowing what I want to do because... Um, really, I, I can write in shorter bursts if I have like a very good sense of where the, like a scene is going or something. But if I only have 45 minutes and I'm like just noodling and like trying to find the shape of a paragraph that makes sense, then it feels like wasted time. Um, cause I'll come up, you know, I'll get off at, at Market East and not have written anything. Um, even if I made mental progress. So, um, that's like the, more everyday common writing experience. But when I can, I will lock myself in this office that I am in and just turn off the internet um, and try to get as much out at once as I can. Um, I write in Scrivener, which is a word processing program that has... um, it's, it's designed for novelists or people writing um, screenplays or I think even like dissertations. It has a sort of lot of bells and whistles that are a little friendlier towards um, shuffling order of things and sort of tagging them and, and plotting them out with various kinds of metadata so that you can, I guess, be a little more systematic. I really just appreciate it because you can rearrange scenes without having to like cut and paste a giant chunk of text because then word will crash. Um, So I sit in that and it also allows you to sort of make notes, be like this scene, like whatever's going to happen. And then you can come back and have a little like note card. Um, uh, I don't really like trying to plot actively. I'd rather just do it in the back of my mind while I'm, uh, you know, doing dishes or whatever. (laughs) Um, And then 
I try to like get so into it that I go into like a total flow state and don't realize that it's been like an hour and a half and that my leg has fallen asleep. <laughs> right. So I want to unpack a few of those steps that sound really interesting to me. Sure. Um, in passing, you seem to mention just then while doing dishes or something, you might get a broad feel for something and mm-hmm. then the goal is, okay, I know broadly my intentions and now I'm going to you know, build the scaffolding and do the work. Is, is that a fair assessment of, of what you said there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I do think that, uh, like when I was talking before about the sort of really punchy high concept books versus the uh, lyrically driven ones, I guess, or the language driven ones, for lack of a better word, I feel like writing books, I tend to happen upon the high concept like last, if I'm writing them myself, not working as an editor. So I do often in that kind of... Um, subconscious imagination processing where I'm doing something else mundane, but kind of keeping me physically occupied. Uh, that's when I kind of just come across like, uh, little, um, I guess like sensory images or like feelings I want to evoke or like details about characters or, or, um, interesting plot things I can throw in there. And they're all very, um, sort of wispy and not connected. And then, it's when I sit down and write that I kind of knit them together and try to make them into something um, that's that's realistic and well-rounded and kind of has a dynamic plot motion uh, in one way or another. And I'm trying to think of an example because this, this feels very airy-fairy <laughs> without right. tying it to something. Um, I mean, in the, note, the notebook I used to plot out Who's That Girl, I wrote a lot of really random stuff. I was like, pop tarts because i was like that's going to be an integral moment or um i was like oh uh there's a weird statue at the school that has a dumb nickname and like these these are not details that necessarily have like the most bearing on the plot or the theme or even the characters but they're kind of creating an environment for me i think as the writer that like gets me to the place where i can actively imagine those elements you know plot and character and stuff and so it's almost like scrapbooking in a way just like letting things drift in and sticking them to a a mental page um and then kind of looking at that and being like oh i see what i'm doing now and now i shall put it to paper Mm -hmm. such a common theme so many different writers and so many different writing forms have that habit of in 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 journalism my background Mm -hmm. the the phrase is gathering string you're gathering string for stories of the future and Absolutely. I, I wonder how would you characterize why that is important enough to be familiar across genres and mm. writing types? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I want to say it was Anne Lamott who talked about having like a little Dr. Seuss character inside you and it's in the basement of your being and it's it has scissors and it's like cutting shapes and making little strings of paper dolls or snowflakes or whatever. And all you have to do is just keep handing it paper, you know, um, and then it kind of does the rest. And um, I, I think the reason that no one, no two people really ever conceive of this process using the same metaphors uh, is that it is very personal. Um, And that part of the reason that, you know, maybe the reason I connected with this guy on stage at the writer's assembly in sixth grade was that like we were kind of like coming to that wavelength of recognizing that the gears in the other person's brain turn the same way that ours did, even if 
when we sort of mm. spat out how it felt, it it was totally different. Um, so uh, I I don't know. I think that like I mean I'm no psychologist and I've barely taken biology, but I do think <laughs> there is a large part of it that just happens in when you're not looking. You know, I, oh gosh, who was it who says you you write behind your back? You know, you're mm. you're not. Um, it, it's kind of like uh, holding the butterfly. You know, if you if you clench on it and try to like force it out, um, it dies. So. Uh, mm. And that was like six different metaphors at once. But the writers know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I like that. Um, I think that'll be a a theme of so many of these conversations. Oh, yeah. Uh, I want to try to uh, put together a few of those. I want to have you put together a few Mm -hmm. of those writing modes you shared. Mm -hmm. Sure. So something feels really important to me about, I think I heard at least four from you the I'm in a train and I have some time and I'm going to put some Mm -hmm. work in yeah I I lock myself in my closet and I'm getting into a flow state yes I'm capturing written words or phrases or ideas Mm -hmm. or things that for some reason move me to Mm -hmm. it I'm not even sure why yeah and there's the I am doing an entirely different physical thing and in my mm-hmm. mind assembling ideas. And yeah. if, if those kind of unfairly, I'm putting that on you right now, but I wonder if if you were to make up an example of a phrase or a setting or a scene or something, mm-hmm. how would it, if you were to be writing a scene tomorrow mm-hmm. in, in a, you know, your next YA novel, what mm-hmm. would the responsibility of those four times have in contributing to that scene? I gotcha. Okay. Um, I think kind of working backwards, obviously the like head down part where you're just like um, almost transcribing what's in your head uh, is the last part because um, I, I mean, that I can't sort of discover. Yeah. The locked in the office or even on the train. I think those are both like very, um, goal oriented, you know, I'm like, I'm either literally on a deadline or I'm on a self-imposed deadline. Um, and I just want to create something that has a beginning, middle and end, like scene wise, not an entire book at once. That'd be crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, not that I haven't tried, but, um, so that's, (laughs) that's definitely the last part. And then pulling all the way back to the sort of, I mean, I like that you say gathering string because I always say wool gathering and people don't know what that expression means and I'm like I'm Mm. pretty sure it's a phrase but maybe it isn't (laughs) but it is it's I just always think of it as like walking through a field with like it's not wool granted but like milkweed or or dandelions in the air and you're like oh yes that one um (laughs) so I think that's that's like way um at the other end at the very beginning and maybe it's even before them where you're kind of you feel like you've been struck by a piece of space junk and you're like oh that like whatever idea I just had that's really cool and um I'm sure that many writers you've talked to have expressed this feeling of like, they don't know where it comes from. And it obviously comes from them because that's how thoughts work. But uh, mm-hmm. it really, it does feel so spontaneous, uh, which is really exciting because I do think that if you're trying to labor at it and sit down and be like, okay, time to come up with a brilliant idea like that never works. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's part of the thrill of it is that it's so unexpected. And then I personally try to like drop everything and 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 get as much of it down as I can before the sort of 
mood or the feeling of it ebbs away. Um, mm. I guess I'm a little superstitious. So those are kind of the two ends. And then anything in the middle is kind of like maybe writing a few lines down that I feel like are good, you know, a good back and forth between characters or something. Uh, but I don't quite know where it fits in like that beginning, middle end scene that I would write through in a more focused um, session or um, making notes for things that happen later. I don't tend to like plot stuff out entirely, but I do like to go in with like a sense of what the very bad thing that'll happen about two thirds of the way through is. <laughs> um, <laughs> because you're mostly building to that for those first two thirds and then recovering from it in the last third. So if you know that, you kind of have at least the broadest contours of your plot. Um, does that make sense? Does that sort of get at what you were yes. asking? Okay. Absolutely. Uh, I wonder if you could unpack that a bit in that kind of framework we just built of when is the work for you and when is the and yeah. perhaps just split, but that that's interesting to me. I mean, the way I see it, half the work is just getting myself to work, um, like <laughs> convincing myself that it's fun, convincing myself that it's like worth the time to like waste time to do that wool gathering or to like commit an hour to focusing on this project, whether that means my fingers are moving on a keyboard or not. Um, because there are a lot of things that feel like they're more worthwhile or more fun um, sometimes. And that's why like having, I mean, it's, it's great to sell a book because it's fun to publish a book and have your book published, but it's also like, oh, someone gave me money for this, so I better finish it. <laughs> you know, like right. I have to turn this in. Um, so that's like a really good feet to the fire kind of thing. And then I think it feels a little less like work, oddly, even though it's literally become like a transaction, like a job. Um, mm -hmm. because you don't really have a choice, but to me, the real work, not to like dodge the question, but is like the mental forcing yourself to do it. And, um, it's not that I don't enjoy writing. I really, really do. I don't think I would do it if I didn't think it was fun because you can't make a living at it. And, uh, and most people, as soon as you tell them you're a writer, they're like, oh God, like, here we go. Um, so I think it's, it's, um, it's like a mental trick and it is what you said. It's like not uh, waiting for like that one moment of inspiration that, that comes pretty intermittently and like not at a productive clip and then just sort of like stapling your butt to the chair, um, <laughs> which I, I, so I, I came up as a romance writer. That's not really true. I was um, a member of the Romance Writers of America for two years, starting when I turned 18, because you had to be 18, I think for, legal reasons. Um, and I, I went to one conference in San Francisco when I was 18 um, with my mom, because my parents wouldn't let me go by myself. So my mom would like sit in the hotel working on uh, illustrations. She had like her watercolor paper stretched out. And I would go to these like sessions about writing romance because I thought it was really fun. And I thought, honestly, and I regret sounding so judgmental because I do respect the genre, but I was like, this will be easy. Like, these aren't real books. Right. Like, I'll figure it out. Well, I didn't figure it out, partially because I still had not had a boyfriend at 18. And I was like, I can make this <laughs> up, but like, you super can't. Um, and uh, I, I came to appreciate that, like, it, those women, and it's pretty much all women, are just real workhorses. And I say that with, like, admiration, because they write mm -hmm. so fast. And especially because romance was at the forefront of e-publishing before like Amazon was in the game. There were these pretty like podunk websites where you'd like PayPal them some money and they'd send you a PDF, you know, and they, they did great business because that's how fast those readers read. And they were able to serve much narrower interests than a traditional publishing house did. So 
they just write at volume and they don't really have time to like feel sorry for themselves or like wring their hands over their art. And I mean, granted, they're not writing infinite jest, but they're still writing books that don't suck, you know, like they're they're books that are cohesive and and deliver what the readers want, which, you know, is is the goal of any book. I think Um, you're making a promise to the reader and you're trying to deliver that. Um, So I think I that was kind of a, a formative moment in like, I don't know, just establishing discipline, really, um, but not in a way that felt like white knuckled and, and joyless, like, because God knows those women have fun. And that's why I really right. enjoyed being around them. Um, but, you know, thinking about the fact that, like, it could be both a job that you produced a product from pretty regularly and routinely, but also something that, like, you really, really loved. Um, and I still think many of the writers in that genre are able to hold both of those concepts at once as they work through their writing careers. And that's really, really admirable. Mm. To the, the point of, of volume and speed and, and the mm-hmm. work of it, maybe to use your, your, your novel as an example. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in the, the, just the size of a novel, any novel, sure. you know, 30, 40, 50,000 words, whatever the number is, the, the, the mechanism of editing that mm-hmm. always for me is so interesting. How much were you saying before I start typing, I know a bad thing that's going to happen versus I think I I'm knew gonna, yeah. I, I knew pretty well um, because I, uh, it, it all sort of came together. Um, I'm trying to think of like a visual metaphor, sort of like a kaleidoscope when all the beads rush towards the middle, you know, it just, Mm -hmm. there are all these little bits and they, they connected, um, not super elegantly. I did revise it a lot. Um, but I did know, I mean, uh, I'm going to have to spoil my own book just to explain this. Uh, but there's kind of like a spoilers. Yeah. Spoilers. You should still buy it because it's really the execution and the language that make it so beautiful. No. Well um, done. It's, it's yeah. a poignant narrative. I it's, think. it's a poignant narrative of a, an awkward teenage girl learning to be herself, which it actually kind of is. But regardless. Um, so uh, the the big it's a book about, um, as the title suggests, like finding out who you are uh, in the context of zany TJ, teenage hijinks. And so I knew that um the, the sort of uh, like potential love interest that the main character has, who's this like rock star guy who may or may not have written this song about her, um, that the, the telling moment when you know that he's not right for her because he doesn't really know who she is, is that um, he like tries to kiss her and he's just eaten a Pop-Tart, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> uh, and she's allergic to strawberries, but he doesn't know that. And so she like blows up in hives and has to go to the emergency room. Um, you know, as happens when you're having your first kiss when you're a teenager. Right. So right. Um, I just knew, I felt like that was, I mean, as someone with deadly food allergies, it's not like super funny, but I was also like, this is hilarious. And it's like, I, I felt like I was really onto something because it's just for physical comedy purposes. It seems like it would be a fun scene to be like, this is so romantic. Mm-hmm. Oh God, call an ambulance, you know? Um, and also it did have some kind of like, metaphorical meaning that it was like well right. he may have um written a song for you maybe and like tried to like suck up to you but like he's really a loser who doesn't know who you really are with all your right. strange medical conditions so so yeah so i i was working toward that and then i kind of had like a chekhov's EpiPen. you know i'm like trying to make sure that i'm like planting <laughs> the seeds of because i mean like seriously i i am i'm very allergic to peanuts and so i carry my EpiPen everywhere it's like super dorky but 
every time I go to a movie or like see something like in Freaks and Geeks when he you like know that Bill is allergic to peanuts I was like fuck he's gonna eat a peanut like they wouldn't bring this up <laughs> unless it was gonna happen later and then he does and I, I like can't actually watch it or um that movie with JLo the boy next door where she uh her son is allergic to something and then later in the movie she stabs a guy through the eye with an EpiPen <laughs> like <laughs> That was my favorite example of it because it was just like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) But um, anyway, so yeah, so I knew that was going to happen. And then when I got to the four-fifths, the thing is I had also written a novel the month before. (laughs) So Yeah, so I was like, I got to four-fifths and I was like, I'm tired. (laughs) Like, this is a lot of work for two months. And um, I just kind of, I petered out, which was lame. Like, I I wish I had finished it, but... It all worked out uh, eventually because um, I did sort of know where the end was going to go. I mean, I knew she was going to, you know, be with a guy that you want her to be with through the whole book. And um, it is, a, I, I call it a romantic comedy, although that's not strictly a, like a YA genre because it is like that. It has a lot of tropes and, and cliches, uh, but ones that I think are delightful and recurrent for a reason. And as much as I have sort of dragged the the language really makes it, I do think that you know, in these genres that have, like romance, for example, very established tropes. I mean, readers want to see those, but you do have to render them interestingly. And I actually find that to be kind of a challenge because um, you do have to give a fresh uh, face to something that people have seen like millions of times before. Um, right. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I left it unfinished for quite a while, uh, I think three years, <laughs> and then I finished it. Mm. Uh, all in one day. I wrote 10,000 words in one day, which I also really? don't recommend. <laughs> yeah, it was a snow day. So you, I, I didn't have a lot to do. You decided, this for goodness sakes, three years in, yeah. this needs to be done. I'm doing it today. That yeah. Was, that was... Well, so my, my agent, I had gotten an agent with that first book I had written um, when I was in Canada. And uh, we tried to sell it and it didn't sell, which was a really good thing in retrospect. And I was talking mm. to him and... Uh, he was like, well, and do you, you mean you mean because you're less proud of that? Is that what you mean by I'm that? I'm less proud of it. I think I was I was um, kind of writing a a check that my butt couldn't cash at the time, or possibly mm. ever. Like it was, I didn't have a, as as uh, encapsulated a sense of what it was and what it was trying to say. Um, whereas with this book, Who's That Girl? I mean, again, the advantage of a romantic comedy is like, I just I knew where the beats fell. I knew what I wanted it to right. feel like, and I knew what the project of it was. You know. Um, not to say that I like picked it because it was easy. I, I really did come to it organically through the the doors of the characters and the personalities in it. But once I was onto that, I like I could see the finish line. I just hadn't managed to get there in Montreal. <laughs> so, mm. um, so yeah, he he asked if there was anything else. He he's like, have you ever written a comedy? Because actually, the first book was really kind of like an angsty love triangle book, and I was like, mm. yeah, sort of, but it's not done. And I just. I mean, I, like, really wanted to sell a book because, you know, I was right. 25, by God. Like, I needed to get my life together. So <laughs> um, so I sat down and wrote it and finished it, and we managed to sell it. But then I – everything that was that 10,000 words, like, completely changed <laughs> because it was pretty slapdash. And I think it got across, like, the events weren't incorrect in terms of what the plot needed, but the execution was wanting. So mm-hmm. – um, but, like, thank God, revision is a thing. So Right. Right. And when you were at... Final question here before mm-hmm. we, we wrap by hearing some of your words. That editing process was... What, is, is the editing as spaced 
is the editing more spaced out than your your four fifths and ten thousand <laughs> words in one day writing? Is oh. it I'm gonna edit this section or or you know how would you approaching the the editing portion? Well, you know when I um I mean. I, I revised it, obviously, once I had finished and kind of, like, fine-tuned it, and then I sent it to my agent, and then he and I usually talk about something, and he has me iron anything else out that he sees as a problem, or he's just like, this is a mess, like, try again, and, like, really right. send me a whole new version. But the great thing about working with an editor is that they give you a list of stuff that needs to be fixed, so mm-hmm. you don't have to think about that. You have to figure out how to do it, but you're not, like, you know like blindly groping for all the problems and then also they're like and get it back to us in three weeks so you're like like i just i i have another book coming out um with harper uh next year and i just got edits from my editor and um and they're great and she's really fantastic and has some good suggestions that i think are going to make it a lot less bad um but she was like can you (laughs) turn it in on april 16th which uh at the time of this recording is like two weeks from now. And I was like, absolutely not. I was like, it's not, I mean, maybe if I had nothing else to do, but like my weekends are spoken for already. Um, Mm -hmm. So I got to the end of the month, but I I do actually think that that's a good thing because I don't have that much time to kind of uh, just like be um, half-assed about it. Like it must be a whole last effort. And uh, (laughs) when I was revising this first one, I was still getting my master's. So I had like all that work to do and work full time. And I had, I think two work trips that the month that I had to revise it, but I like somehow got it done. I must've blacked it out. Um, (laughs) But no, I really, really do appreciate working with editors because, and I'm not saying that because I'm an editor. I don't think I'm as good as the editors I work with. (laughs) Thank God. But um, they, they do manage to write, I mean, an edit letter, at least the ones I get are like 10 pages. Like there's a lot in there and a lot of it's like just compliments, which is great. But then there are things like, did you want to explain how this makes any sense in the logic of this right. book? And you're like, I guess I should. But um, it is nice to just go through and like sort of highlight the action items and then like make a list and then kind of arrange it from like biggest with most downstream effects to fine tuniest And then just you do get to be much more systematic. And it is there's really not as much of that sort of spacing out and trying to find ideas because you're actively solving a problem that exists in a concrete form as opposed to Mm. what is this book you know it's like the book is this but it's not working because of this reason how are you going to circumvent that and make it better Hmm. okay yeah that's interesting well, so um, we've taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, Blair. But uh, no, I, I'm I, sorry I keep talking. Like this no, is why uh, when I when I dictate my writing, I come out with like five thousand words of gibberish on my phone. This is this is great. So, but I want we we ought to if we could see mm-hmm. some of that in action. Sure. So, um, if if you would, would you would you would you deign to <laughs> read uh, you know some words that you've written and perhaps allow us to walk backward and, and learn some things about how it might have changed? Sure, I, I would be happy to. So um, I'm going to read from the very first page of Who's That Girl because um, people tell me that they really like the first line, um, mm. which I don't even think was originally the first line. Unfortunately, the first first line has been lost to the ages. But um, <laughs> I like the way it ended up. So, um, so yeah, I'll read the first page or so. Um, <clears throat> Everything weird started the day my dad brought home the yurt. Robert, Anne McCullough, alias mom, was peering through the windows of our back door, cup of coffee in hand, and frowning. Robert Schwartz, alias dad, had taken the station wagon somewhere early that morning and was now puttering around in the yard. 
But since puttering was one of those activities Dad did to relax, like separating the recycling or buying dress shoes on eBay, I wasn't exactly concerned. Um, so <laughs> I could go on, but... Um, yeah, and so a few things that, that right off the bat to, to signify by the time you're writing this still in your mid-20s are, 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 have established a you know, track record of knowing what, what should be in there. I still wonder how much of that changed from when you first wrote it at all, when you first mm-hmm. submitted something to an editor and agent to, to publish. What are some steps that changed if you, if you can remember them? Totally, yeah. Well, I also have like the, the draft manuscript here on my computer. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so um, I, I'm just... I think when I first started writing it, um, and this is what I generally try to do as I revise, it was just, it was a little vague. I think, especially in writing humor, specificity is what makes it funny. Um, mm-hmm. Because the more personal you are, the the better the joke lands. Um, right. Like, I, I actually took stand-up comedy classes when I was in undergrad in Chicago um, in this really awesome all-women stand-up class. And... Uh, that was like the one thing that we got drilled into us was like always be more specific. Like it's funnier right. to say Birkenstocks than it is to say shoes, you know? Right. And right. not just because Birkenstock is a weird word, which it is. Um, <laughs> so like that in the um, in the original version or the original-ish version that I have, it's like the dad's just puttering around and that's not unusual. But um, when I was revising, I was like, well, puttering is such a fun word and it's such yes. a like dadly word. So then I was like, well, let's like tease that out and let's say, because puttering was one of his favorite things, you know, which is not right. something that dad would admit to, but the daughter sees it. And um, I think that like her perception of her father is consistent throughout this book as like a source of humor. And so just by by teasing out the sort of fun of that word, it's it's establishing that. And then more to the specific points, the um, separating the recycling and buying shoes on eBay are just things that my dad does. <laughs> and I thought, like, <laughs> they're funny. And uh, I actually, so I worked on a book at Quirk that I love. I think it's one of the best books we've ever done called Dad Magazine, which is just a, a fake magazine with, like, dad interest things, you know, like, um, uh, now I'm trying to remember, how to buy shoes on eBay, for example. Right. Uh, that's a perfect example. Um, the use of puttering for me is is fun, specifically the the you know, you know, dad magazine, mm-hmm. um, finding, finding character characteristics and playing it out. But as a really tactical example, um, is that you write first manuscript and mm-hmm. you say, Oh, I want to play with this word more. Did it in that, in that example, take someone else uh-huh. saying you should tease it out more. Just talk a little bit about where that decision came from and, and expanding. That's the phrase I want to expand. You know, I'm not even sure that I have articulated the choice as uh, as thoroughly as I just did until now. <laughs> um, mm. It's it's instinctual, I think, and right. um, I do feel like it's it's almost like copywriting, where you just are like, all right, let's punch this up, and you don't really know. I mean, punch up is is sort of like a you know, it's a it's a jargony phrase that I guess right. means different things to different people. But I think sometimes I, I just look at this paragraph and I'm like, this is it's a little lackluster, you know, or it, it just could be more. Um, and so uh, I just sort of went in and tried to do that. And I think both in the sense of, you know, the, the idea of puttering being something dads like to do is kind of a conceptual joke because it's 
it's dependent on the voice of the character, but then the actions of separating recycling and buying shoes on eBay are, are real concrete things that she's not making up. You know, she's, she's relating something that's actually happened. And so I guess those are kind of the two ways that you can punch up. You know, you can take a specific word and, and make the best use of it in terms of what you're trying to achieve, probably subconsciously. I don't know that you're like really engineering at that, um, at that granular level. Or you just paint more of a picture with examples of actions uh, that are happening or that have previously happened to, to realize the physical world of the book uh, more clearly. <laughs> I like that. Uh, well, Blair, in closing, I wonder if, if, if there is anything so far in your career that you've learned tactically might even, even be more inspiring than, than the philosophy. If there are tactics that mm-hmm. you picked up about your writing process that you wish you had for you, perhaps in that, uh, that, that artist Garrett in Montreal mm-hmm. yeah. or, or some other time? Are there sure. tips now that you're so strong at that you want others to know too? Yeah, I think I've really come to appreciate the power of the exercise, um, mm. which obviously writing exercises really run the gamut. There's a ton of different, you know, idea generating ones or whatever. I particularly like ones to kind of flesh out and strengthen an idea you already have. Um, I think the the best ones are ones that are not sort of like, what color are your character's eyes? I'm like, I don't know. I'll pick that later. Like, I haven't even thought about right. it. Um, or like, what's their favorite food? No one cares. But uh, the ones that <laughs> have you think about like, what is is painful in their past and how that's kind of pushing them to be who they are and what they want now, um, which is admittedly very abstract and broad. But um, right. even even in a book that's funny, I mean, there is a kind of like emotional scar that is shaping the characters. And that's, you know, that's where you mine plot action. Certainly it can also be where you mine comedy from. Um, mm-hmm. So I really like doing that. I also... Um, I mean, and I, you I, might, and you might. How would you literally do that exercise? I mean, there are exercises that sure. might not even be in your book. You are you are writing them somewhere else. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this is like extra textual writing, which I right. used to think was a waste of time, and uh, sometimes it still feels like it. But I I always get something out of it, and I actually, I mean, this particular exercise is based on um, the author Franny Billingsley has this whole theory of emotional wounds. I think she calls them where uh, she gets you to talk in sort of a series of questions about like what what is the character's past, but then also how does it manifest in the worldview and how does it manifest in their internal monologue and the language that they use and the narrative voice of the book, which I think is where a lot of those emotional character building exercises come just short of that. And as like a very nitty gritty words person, I love thinking about that because the way characters talk um, just betrays who they are, you know, they're, they're sort of more formal registers can be kind of a protective mechanism or their, their casual kind of swear infested stuff can be like a, a posturing almost to make them seem cool or like, you know, whatever. And, and it's really fun to, to infuse every step of your character creation and manuscript drafting with that much intentionality. We started and closed with the idea of having to schedule the time to do the work. You can find online so many writing prompts to help with character development. It's a question of if you can prioritize the time. Okay, 
That is this episode of The Writing Process, a weekly podcast conversation with writing masters. Look for The Writing Process on iTunes and all of the many places podcasts appear and subscribe. You'll be able to find all of our episodes as we post them at writingprocesspod.com. Thank you to my guest, Blair Thornburg, whom you can find on Twitter at A Tall Order, or at BlairThornburg.com, where you can find links to her books, including her YA novel, Who's That Girl?, and another on the way. Our theme music is from James Spadola, who overuses the past perfect tense. I'm your host, Christopher Wink. Find me at Christopher Wink or watching YouTube videos on evolutionary biology. Until next time, remember, choose your words more carefully.